From Finance and Commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation and technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. This special episode of Beyond the Skyline features an experts forum on innovation in Rochester. Innovation being synonymous with Mayo Clinic is nothing new, but now, thanks to Rochester's massive multi-year undertaking to present the entire city as a beacon for innovators and entrepreneurs, the entire region 75 miles south of the Twin Cities is poised for a technological and economic renaissance. Our panelists were Tracy Downs, Executive Director of the Collider Foundation. A serial entrepreneur with a passion for Rochester, Downs has been the co-founder of several tech companies, including Fatigue Science and Area 10 Labs. She's also the current owner of Cafe Stream, which currently has four locations in Rochester. Shay Mandel is president and CEO of Medical Alley Association, a position he has held since May 2014. During his tenure, the association has undertaken significant transformation to focus on championing and facilitating an environment that enables health technology and care organizations to innovate, succeed, and influence the evolution of healthcare. Under Mandel's leadership, the association's vision is to elevate Minnesota's Medical Alley as the global epicenter of health innovation and care. Dr. Clark Otley currently serves as Medical Director of the Department of Business Development at Mayo Clinic. In 2014, Otley joined Mayo Clinic Ventures as Medical Director, partnering with the leadership and staff to stimulate entrepreneurism and commercialize inventions across Mayo Foundations. Otley also serves as Vice President of Destination Medical Center Economic Development Agency Board and as the Director of the American Board of Dermatology. Dr. Stephen Russell is a world-renowned researcher in the field of gene and virus therapy. He combines more than three decades of leadership as a clinician and researcher with extensive experience in all aspects of drug discovery and development. A board-certified hematologist, Russell is the co-founder of Viriad. The Richard O. Jacobson Professor of Molecular Medicine at Mayo Clinic and Vice President of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. Chris Shad has worked in a variety of leadership positions in clinical and research laboratories, genomics-based initiatives, and strategic relations since coming to Mayo Clinic in 1986. In his current role, he is on loan to the Destination Medical Center Economic Development Agency, directing business and economic development for Discovery Square, recruiting tech companies to Rochester, helping grow the entrepreneurial ecosystem, attracting investment capital to the region, and partnering with K-12 and other higher education organizations for workforce development and creating access points to Mayo Clinic operating in Discovery Square. And Pam York, the co-founder and general partner of Capita3. She is an early stage investor and a serial entrepreneur with operational expertise in startups and corporations. 
She is currently focused on venture capital financing of women building game-changing companies and bringing awareness-based leadership into the startup environment for increased success. Our wide-ranging conversation took place last fall at One Discovery Square in Rochester. An excerpt from this full interview was published in December. Well, again, thank you everyone for uh, joining me today. Uh, we'll just go around the room. I wonder if we could introduce ourselves here. Sure, my name is Chris Schaff. I'm with the DMC Economic Development Agency. My role is Director of Business Development for Discovery Square in the Innovation District that we're building here in Rochester. Well, I'm Tracy Downs. I'm the Executive Director of Collider Foundation, a, a foundation focused on entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Rochester and supporting and developing it, as well as I'm a PhD in neuroscience and a serial entrepreneur. Great. So I'm Steve Russell. I'm the CEO of Veriad, but I'm also a professor at Mayo Clinic, um, and uh, my focus is um, research into using viruses as cancer therapy. Great. And I'm Shay Mandel. I'm the president and CEO of the Medical Alley Association, and we are the healthcare association for Minnesota. I'm Pam York. I'm co-founder and general partner of Capital Three. It's a venture capital group investing in early stage startups led by women. And I've worn a lot of hats over the years that are sort of relevant to what we're doing here, including serial entrepreneur, PhD in electrical engineering, so academic research and publications, and um, ecosystem building. So I'm sure we'll kind of get into that later. Yeah, for sure. I'm Clark Otley. I'm the Medical Director of Business Development at Mayo Clinic, and I'm a dermatologic surgeon at Mayo Clinic. I'm also practicing or uh, serving as the interim president of the Mayo Clinic platform at this time. Okay. Great. Well, I'm going to start off with just a big, broad, open question and see where it goes. Um, obviously, we're here. Mayo is at the core of what we're, uh, what's going on here in Rochester. Um, what are we trying to do here? What are we building upon? Um, just that big, broad question to start us off. Um, what's, what's going on here with Mayo and Rochester now? Anybody want to start? Do you want to start? <coughs> well, I'll get started. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I think there's a lot others are going to be able to contribute. And, and for sure, Dr. Audley and his role with uh, business development. But, um, the people who work at Mayo Clinic, people like Dr. Russell and, and his colleagues around the campus are extraordinarily innovative. Uh, lots of new inventions, lots of new ideas coming out of a place of where they, I, the needs are identified. It's not a hammer in search of a nail. Um, so it's real solutions to real problems. And uh, what we're growing here and, and what we see growing is a way to get more of those products out into the market locally, starting locally, rather than starting somewhere else and also taking advantage of Mayo's partnerships that they have around the country and around the world to bring those partners here to work alongside of Mayo and work alongside of each other in some cases to speed the pace of getting those products out to market. And um, Dr. Otley is in a pretty good position to talk about like the kinds of innovations and the, the pace of the innovation coming out of Mayo and the role of BD. So maybe you can Yeah, so from a Mayo Clinic perspective, uh, we rely on the brilliance of our physician scientists like Steve to advance healthcare. And really under Gianrico Ferrugia, our new CEO's leadership, we are setting our target very high. We are aiming at transforming healthcare in ways that I don't think Mayo Clinic has 
um, conceptualized before or had the um, vision to do before. John Rico is extremely uh, passionate about making full use of our incredible position as the number one healthcare authority in the world and, and the country and wants to do that in different ways than we've done in the past. So traditionally, we've done a lot of biomedical research uh, across all the different disciplines. We've done that across diagnostics and prognostics, medical devices, medications, healthcare informatics, and increasingly in our digital age, it's coming to a point where all the things we had wanted to do over the past 20 years we're actually technologically maybe enabled to do now, or at least to start to do, and he wants us to do that. Okay. And so we've got visions of doing science and doing healthcare in ways that are more transformative rather than incremental as part of this Mayo Clinic platform. Okay. So yeah, I, I came to Mayo Clinic 21 years ago from Cambridge in the UK and the, the uh, assignment was to build a molecular medicine program which essentially is building novel therapeutic approaches to human disease using viruses and genes as the you know, tools uh, of the trade. And it's really drug development and it was um, slightly frustrating for a number of years that it was difficult to move into a commercial arena. You know, Mayo Clinic is never going to become a, a drug company. And so at some point, research done at Mayo needs to move out into the commercial arena for further development, multi-centered clinical trials, um, and, and the uh, commercialization process. So that was difficult, and it was always uh, Mayo faculty were forbidden to start companies to assume leadership roles within companies based on the research that they were doing at Mayo Clinic. And then, uh, I think it was in 2012, Mayo changed the rules of engagement, and, and they introduced an employee entrepreneurship program and encouraged faculty at Mayo to um, start exploring possibilities for the formation of new companies and encourage those faculty who were interested to become involved in that process. And that was really a, a, a very important turning point, I think, in the um, sort of unleashing of this pent-up opportunity that existed of many, many different uh, investigators of Mayo developing approaches to disease, you know, whether they be devices or um, new drugs or new technologies. Um, so now people could um, really start moving in the direction of forming small companies. And I think in order to maximally capitalize on that opportunity, the ecosystem needed to be developed here within Rochester. And I think that's happening. You know, it's a, it's a relatively slow process. Uh, but I think, you know, there are individuals in this room who've got their foot hard on the accelerator to make it happen more rapidly than it otherwise would do. And I, I, I just feel the process is going really well now. Okay. Maybe let's talk a little bit more about that than right now. You said it's an opportunity, the conditions are right. Maybe describe a little bit more from your various perspectives on what you see here, what more about those conditions that why this is taking off um. well I, I think that in some ways it's been a it's like the, the 
10-year or 20-year process that becomes an overnight success. It's kind of, there's been a ton of work that has been done for years to take and create what is happening now. And with the DMC and with Mayo, the change of, change of, of culture within Rochester. Um, I agree with, with Dr. Russell that it, things are, at a re my, from my perspective, in an amazing time because we've had, with the DMC coming about five years ago, we're getting funded. Mm -hmm. um, and now we have this large amount of money that's coming as independent investors are investing in this community and we have matches uh, from the state. We take and um, are getting buildings built, like the one we're in now, the yeah. Discovery Square, plus many, many other uh, supporting uh, buildings, such as hotels and apartment complexes and, and a lot of kind of development activity that's happening within Rochester, which then um, is getting filled with people that are very intentional. So when to the One Discovery Square building, there's been a lot of work, and you know, Chris can speak in depth about all the things that have happened to take and create, to curate a building and a community, um, the beginning of a community that really develops. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's groups like Kleiner Foundation that, and others who have been the early advocates for that entrepreneurship. and. Pam, you know what that takes to build those ecosystems. You did that down in Iowa City, right? And, and I'd be curious to hear your perspective on what you had and did there and what you see here. And I'd also like to hear, actually, from Tracy, because you brought a tech firm here. I did. Right? And, and what it was when you first brought the tech firm and what you're seeing now. So I think, you know, Pam, as somebody who doesn't live here but who is down here fairly frequently, what, what you see. Sure. So University of Iowa, it's a very good comparable for what's happening here in Rochester. It's a relatively small city, um, you know, with a large university, University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. So a lot of the work that's going on there, you know, is medically related, life science related. And I was brought there to help build a startup ecosystem. And uh, when I got there, uh, you know, it was no entrepreneurs, no venture capital, no startups, and in an environment where people didn't really, mostly didn't want that to happen. There was a discomfort with, hmm. you know, business is not what we do. You know, it's, it's not, it's sort of this, not a good thing. <laughs> you don't combine academic research and, and business. And um, so that was the environment that I stepped into, and it was this process of really starting with, you know, the perspective of we can do, we actually can do this, we actually can build a startup ecosystem here, and we had to really start with the why. Why is this, it, startups innovation, it's become sort of, you know, motherhood and apple pie. It's, it's a movement globally, and there's a lot of macroeconomic factors affecting that. But for any institution in any region, there has to be a very clear why are we doing this. And there, it was very much an economic development mm -hmm. initiative from the state and the region and the university that they really wanted to form more startups because for economic development purposes. But also, it's becoming, <coughs> for recruiting faculty, and graduate students, if you don't have technology commercialization, innovation, entrepreneurial mindset, it gets it's getting harder to recruit people. Mm -hmm. And so from a workforce perspective, from quality of living perspective, innovation is associated with the, you know, with, with higher quality of living. Um, so there was a lot of reasons that that region and the University of Iowa wanted to participate in that work. And I think the key is to ask here, you know, why what, what is the why here for Mayo Clinic? I think you know we can answer that question, but I, I, I feel like it has to be very clear. Why are we doing this? It's not just about more startups and about more innovation. Well, and I think it's 
I completely agree. And it's the why and and the imperative, I think, for Rochester is that we d develop an entrepreneurial ecosystem and really flesh it out because we have, up until we, I moved to Rochester at, in to almost right after 2012. So I was here for six months and then I moved in 2013 to officially be, and up until that time, Mayo did not have a culture of taking and promoting entrepreneurship within its, within its mandate. And I think, and it's understandable in my mind why they did that. A clinician, the motto of Mayo is patient first. And you want to have clinicians that are focused morning, noon, and night on patient care. The problem is the world has moved. And that now if you take it and prevent people who are passionate about patient care and, and the fields that they're in, not allow them the creative and the entrepreneurial outlet of where they're going to what they're going to do with the things they discover and they invent, that you lose people. You don't take and keep people in in Rochester if they <coughs> are able to take in, and explore those things. So I I think it's why it's it's incredibly easy for Mayo in this community because it is it has the largest per capita physicians, for example, in the world. It has this this intense highly educated pool of people um, that are creative and brilliant and deeply knowledgeable in their fields and you have all the supporting entities and people that are around that and you have to let them take and explore their the other side of clinical care and then from and I think it's, it's now become very um, powerful that Mayo is now saying that it's not just it's encouraging its physicians and it's in its staff to take and do those things because now you can take and bring those things back to the bedside and so you are actually focused on the bigger mandate of patient first so I think it's with all those things it's right for this world to be right where it is today you're exactly right Tracy and it's interesting to think about what enabled that because the the culture of conservatism mm -hmm. that kind of ruled Mayo Clinic was absolutely right intentioned yes. it was avoid any possibility that anybody could make a decision that's not in the patient's best interest and what happened was there was an evolution of our thinking and conflict of interest policies so that we had smarter rules instead of just saying you can't innovate which actually is anti-patient right we said you can innovate but we have to have separations of who's making decisions in the innovation area and who's making decisions in the clinical area. So we have to be very clear and separate those two so that patient's best interest is still served while we're innovating. Yeah. And we just put a, put a guardrail in there so that everybody's treated fairly. Well, and I think it's getting, it's even, is the snowball keeps rolling. It's a good meta Minnesota metaphor. Not <laughs> <laughs> today. <laughs> too soon. It's too soon. It's still November. I think Mayo, to their credit, is getting better and better at, at navigating and understanding yeah. that realm. And so things are moving faster. I know the amount of pat the patents that are being licensed, the amount of startups that are happening is, is really starting to, to, to churn because it, it's been a process. But the beautiful thing is, you know, Mayo Clinic is a, is a very large medical institution, mm -hmm. but people like you, Tracy, and Hunter, and, and the groups that are around Mayo Clinic that are interacting with Mayo Clinic and creating a bigger ecosystem than just Mayo have really brought this town to life. Yeah. And we're so proud of the things that you are doing in the community that you're cultivating, which is absolutely necessary to support inside, but also empowers an outside world that thinks of things in ways the Mayo Clinic doesn't view things.
been great. I think the next step is is Pam's world and taking in uh, getting more mm -hmm. more investment, more traction on taking in funding these really yeah. great ideas. And so I think and your insight also into the world you so uh, continuing on from your world when you were in Iowa, um, what do you see as like the next the next things that are facing? What was your next steps once you got people accepting the the startup world? Well, it, it took a while. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have some of the momentum that maybe we have here, but <laughs> yeah, we we took the long approach, and it was really understanding culturally what are the policies and systems that are that are interfering, and so having this switch in policies was a big factor. But then there's additional yeah. policies that really need to be looked at in terms of you know. Are, are we hindering without realizing it? So that's one thing. And then culturally, we found it to be really important to hold up, you know, people such as yourself, Dr. Russell, to really, um, that this is, someone used the expression to me the other day, entrepreneurs need to stop being second class citizens here mm -hmm. in the clinic. Mm -hmm. And so getting an R01 <coughs> grant, being a startup entrepreneur, those need to be held, you know, as, as equally viable paths, so to speak. And as we started holding up our, we picked our top researchers, we put funding behind them. They have to want to do it. Mm -hmm. They have to have something commercializable, right? But wrapping some resources around those people publicly and um, sort of honoring that as a viable path and having the president of the university, dean of the College of Medicine, all the right people standing up saying yes, that we're going to do this. And one of the examples we really highlighted was there was a company called Optherion. This faculty in ophthalmology had received $15 million in grants from NIH over a several year period and had identified 70% of the genes responsible for age-related macular degeneration. So it's this amazing opportunity to form diagnostics and therapeutics right. Right, um, for AMD, a disease that had no treatments at that time. And we, uh, I was leading the technology transfer group at that time, we took it to 10 of the top pharmaceutical companies and everybody said, I don't believe in that, you know, we're not, they didn't, no one could take a license. So we had to form a startup company and right. within three years the diagnostics component was, was acquired and then the therapeutics component was acquired. And so I think that helped people understand sometimes that's the only way or it's the best way to actually take something and bring it to patients. And it's interesting to see how <coughs> even VC has moved a little bit away from bearing that early risk. And honestly, Mayo Clinics had to create economic models and granting mechanisms to support the earliest stage because nobody's willing to, no. to invest in that level of, of therapy. And you were there at one point, Steve, in your career where it was grants and, you know, grants and publications. It, hmm. Yeah, I mean, strange. you know, m money um, from the venture capital. Um, Firms is is tough money to land yeah. in Rochester, you know. Still, because we're, we're early stage, and so I think the um, that's where the evolution of the ecosystem goes next. Yeah. I think is where the investment community starts to see Rochester mm -hmm. as a destination for investment. Because yeah. at the moment, you know, I for for Viriad, I talk to a very large number of. Um, investment groups. I, I will not tell you the <laughs> but it was a lot over a long period of time, and and it became apparent to me that there was there was a really a, um, a sort of anxiety amongst that group about landing money in Rochester, and so I often got a, into a discussion where I'd be told, you know, we love the technology, we love everything about this company. It looks like it's probably going to succeed. 
moved to Boston, mm -hmm. you know, moved to San Francisco. And some of the companies just said, look, but as a matter of policy, we don't invest anywhere outside of the San Francisco or Boston area. You know, because that's where all the CEOs and CFOs and COOs and recycled entrepreneurs are actually living. So it was a talent and issue. Yeah, yeah. so they t they t it's that leadership mm -hmm. um, yeah. level. Because, you know, people, they think, will not move to Rochester because they'll be fearful that there aren't sufficient other jobs for them to go to if the yep. company mm -hmm. fails. Yeah. And, you know, that it, I think it's a legitimate concern, but I, I think it's overblown by the investment community. And I, we certainly have been able to find people to fill those leadership positions. I mean, there's a huge amount of untapped talent here in Rochester because there are spouses and physicians and, well, e you know, every level of employee at Mayo Clinic, you know, there, there's a sort of partner coming to Rochester thinking, well, you know, what am I going to do? And so that there really is a lot of opportunity here. And I think people are happy to move here. It's a wonderful place to live. You know, anyone who's got young kids is like, wow, yeah, I like this opportunity. So and, the, and she's the state leader, cheer, cheerleader for we, Minnesota, we and so so how do you change that mentality, Shay? You and, you, and you spend your days and nights thinking about this. And what yeah. is what does that bench of talent look like in the cities, which isn't all that far away, right? You talk about that. Yeah, leadership. I mean, I think one of the things we can do a much better job on the ground is being able to make med medical alley a uh, fully connected and functioning. Yeah. And the ecosystem. Um, I think Rochester individually will be over the next ten years the great American entrepreneurship story. Um, I think there was great pent up demand within the faculty to move outside the clinic and productize, and I think that you know the changes in 2012 empowered that. Um, but I also think there's been great, there was great pent up demand from entrepreneurs, investors, and other companies, and you see that now happening here in Discovery Square to access the expertise of Mayo. So you've kind of got these pieces of pent up demand coming together, and then I still think none of this really happens, or it's a decade behind without DMC. And so, you know, I'd say today we're building the infrastructure that will allow. Uh, for the support of an influx of entrepreneurs and capital. I think you see Corp Dev uh, and companies that want to partner with Mayo on research. That's building out. Um, there are entrepreneurs and the talent can be drawn. Mm -hmm. um, and I think investors always lag, but we certainly spend a lot of our time talking to investors on the coast. And we are seeing dollars invested throughout Medical Alley continuing to go up every year. But ultimately, I think the the talent piece is about telling the story. I mean, the, the question of, especially if I'm in biotech, pharma, um, you know, can I move to Rochester or even the Twin Cities and see the kind of career that people can easily see, um, you know, if they're in care delivery or if they're in medical devices. And so relative to Boston, right, that's one of the investors' issues is how are you going to be able to grow, you know, add 100 employees, add 200 employees. But I think we're also seeing those investments happen here. Um, Takeda choosing you know, the Twin Cities to be their center of excellence for biologics in that future. Uh, companies like Biotechni, you know, they're going to do a $50 million investment to expand in St. Paul. Um, and then all the activity that you have here. So I do truly think 10 years from now, 
um, this will be the great success story. Um, and I think our responsibility, and I think this is not just Medical Alley, we can play the umbrella role, but I think it is Mayo's responsibility and it is Medtronic's responsibility um, when we're out traveling around the country, when we're out recruiting mm -hmm. talent, mm -hmm. that we're talking about the entire ecosystem instead of just the quality. I mean, Mayo can get anybody who wants, right? It's the best yeah. hospital in the world, but Mayo can also, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think help to expand what the ecosystem looks like, uh, whether it's for trailing spouses or you know, just entrepreneurs that want to find a great place to start. Um, and so I think if if all the leaders in the community can you know do their part to talk about the community, I think that will accelerate um, <coughs> and fill that infrastructure, which you know will then have to be accelerated more. You, know, you talk about the sorry, uh, real quickly. You talk about the pent up demand. Mm -hmm. There's the inside out pent up demand right. of people like Dr. Russell and others who want to take their ideas out to market. I don't think we really fully appreciated how much pent up demand there was from an outside in Absolutely. perspective. Mm -hmm. In for using this building as an example, we're probably 18 to 24 months ahead of schedule mm -hmm. in terms of where we are in building out space and filling out space for Discovery Square. That this building, you know, the grand opening was just a few months ago, and it's 85 percent leased out, and we're already talking about the second building, probably a year and a half to two years ahead of schedule. That's an indication of that pent up outside in demand of Mayo's partners wanting to be close by, and the the business development group has been at the forefront of getting the word out about what's what's happening, what the opportunities are here. Yeah. Can, can you take a moment then to just describe this building, what it what it does, <coughs> how it's part of DMC's mission, what's here, what's next? This, yeah, this this building, I, I look at this building, it sort of epitomizes the public-private partnership that DMC is in general in that there's public space, there's a coffee shop, you'll see people stepping in from off the street, they don't work here, they're just stopping in for a cup of coffee, but you've got these, this realm of companies, this sort of spectrum of companies out of Shanghai and out of Boston and out of Madison, Wisconsin and other places that are coming here to work alongside um, Mayo Clinic. Um, this really catalyzes those conversations and it becomes a gathering place and a hub of where that innovation can start to go out. And then you have companies like Beriad that outgrew their space and they need manufacturing space and you've got great space on the outside of town out on the, the Northwest campus. It's a perfect model. You start here, you innovate here, you grow here, and then you expand oh, when you get to that larger scale um, manufacturing. Um, but that innovation footprint starts here, I think, uh, where the scientists are doing their job and the clinicians are doing their job. I would add, I, I think having a destination <coughs> place, a single point of entry for outsiders, is a critical component of being able to continue to promote an ecosystem, right? So Chicago's not a great healthcare, um, you know, commercialization town. People can go to Chicago and they go straight to Matter and they feel like they're connected. And there's Kendall Square and other places. So I, th I think really having a place, so now people can come in and they go to Discovery Square. And then they, you know, I mean, their perception is that will give them access to all these companies. That's where they can meet them, access to Mayo. And practically, um, you know, there's still work to be done, right, once yeah. they get here. But having a single point of entry and the perception that that is a place where leaders are, where interactions are happening, where 
there's innovation in the air, I just think it is a critical um, you know, asset to have to attract people to come in and make it easy for them. And I think it, it will accelerate, again, the influx of capital and people as much as anything that's happened here. Yeah, I always second that. And it, it's, I, when I first re moved to Minneapolis, I was talking to, it was in 2011, I talked to a number of coastal investors and was sort of trying to understand, I was trying to get, take a lay of the land. And, and I kept hearing, I just, I don't know where to go when I go there. Right. I don't know who to talk to. I just, I need a trusted guide. And so it's sort of a place to land and a trusted guide through the community. And um, I've heard that everywhere I've been. And so it's, it's, it's a place plus a trusted guide so someone can point me to the right people, the right startups. And um, as soon as we created that at the University of Iowa, we literally had a pipeline, right? And then just all of a sudden, they're showing up and interested. And I think that's been the most fascinating thing to me everywhere I've been. It's amazing how many people there are, how many entrepreneurs, how many people that are interested and able to contribute that you don't know about right. until you raise the flag. And, and you have to raise the flag in a very you know, kind of thoughtful way with the right leaders and the right messages. Mm -hmm. And then you have to follow that up with resources. Mm -hmm. But whether it's gender, whether it's demographic, whether it's sector-based, you know, they're out there and they want to participate. Part of it's just raising the flag and letting them know, here's where you go and here's who can help you. And then it also taps into all the voices of the people that are doing it to be able to tell that story. So mm -hmm. that now it's it's one maybe one point of entry so that you're introducing them to all of the the things that are happening in a community, that's where we're, again, at this tipping point for Rochester. We have a lot of success stories and things that are happening, and now if we can, as we coordinate and hopefully, you know, I've had a Collider executive working with Collider Foundation to that that is one of its goals, is to take and be part of the bringing people in, having them collide and interact, and then tell the stories of the successes that are happening so that we, um, as a community, can take in and uh, leverage all the things that are happening. I think the minutes I came from, I moved from Honolulu six years ago, um, and never thought I would leave Honolulu, but I felt it's a weather change. It's a weather change. <laughs> it was. It was. You, are, you are a courageous. <laughs> woman. It's not as courageous as it sounds, though, because I really think Minnesota is like this unsung hero of this country. I, I mean, I came for Mayo. I needed to be to be treated there, um, but. Everything about Rochester and Mayo and uh, Minnesota are like full on. You have four glorious seasons. I mean, we don't do anything kind of halfway. You have a, we have a full winter, but you have a beautiful summer. Then spring is beautiful and fall. You have, you know, the Rochester specifically is a, it's a small town in a big town, and so you don't have the traffic of, of big cities. The cost of living. I mean, you're talking about investments and people that are looking only at the coast or Boston or, you know, or Silicon Valley. Dollars go a lot further in Rochester, Minnesota, than in Minneapolis, than they do on these big other locations. So, you know, once I think the idea of 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 the limitations in people's minds of what's available here gets gets removed because they don't think that they're legitimate. This is we just need to tell a story of the amazing place that the state is. I feel though we we there's another thing we need in Rochester. I, I think that the kind of next stage in our evolution is a science park. Yeah. You know, because we, we, a lot of people come and see me at my and say, okay, like, tell me the ropes. How, how can I, you know, I've got this technology, I've got this idea. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you navigate the system? So, you know, where do I find a lawyer to form my mm -hmm. company? You know, how much am I, am I going to have to pay for that? Right. Um, you know, who do I go talk to to raise funds for seed financing, right. you know, for late stage of financing? 
where can I get an office? Um, how much right. am I going to have to pay for it? Am I going to have to get a big office? Can I get a bench mm -hmm. to put a scientist mm -hmm. to do some well lab work? Right. How do I get the biosafety approvals that I need to do that? Mm -hmm. Is there an animal facility that I could use to do an in vivo experiment? And is there going to be a canteen there? You know, is do I have to actually lease an office, or can I just be somewhere, pay some rent, and have a meeting room that I can use periodically? And everybody's trying to keep their costs down, and they're trying to find that community that can help them move through those right. initial stages of development. And I think they get a lot of that from the collider, from the um, uh, from the, the accelerator and the biobusiness center, but they don't get the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And and so we, I, I think if we had that, it would really help to accelerate a lot of what's mm -hmm. bubbling up at the moment. Some of that feels like chicken and the egg, yeah. right? So the, the, the talent, mm -hmm. like the legal talent coming if there's work to do, the work to do coming if the legal talent is here. Do you have a perspective on that? like? So we have those conversations, right? I think, I, of I think you're right. But I, th I think it is chicken egg. But what you know, we're evolving a critical mass. Right. At which point, you know, whether it's the chicken or the egg, it, <laughs> pick it's one. Egg. It's <laughs> <gonna> <laughs> <be>. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I agree. I think there's a clean path to that, though. I mean, there are firms and, and Fredrickson and Byron. Yeah, yeah. Very it's a good example. Yeah. So they Absolutely. come down, right? Yes. Absolutely. So, so part of the chicken and egg doesn't have to be that dramatic. Right. I mean, if right. there was having resources there. if there was five times as much activity here tomorrow, like that's the tipping point for Fred Law to go from we'll have an attorney down there two days a month to we'll have two attorneys in town and open an office that's there. Right. Right. So right. before yeah. you have yeah. to bring in lawyers from outside. So I think there's enough. I mean, there's certainly a big enough legal community in Twin Cities and those that are starting to spend more time. They have the expertise they are. certainly. Yeah. Um, so I I think we could close that gap fairly quickly if we had that kind of increase in activity. That's very low hanging fruit. Right. And I mean I yeah. think that's a that's one of the easiest problems to solve and uh, and package that and so we should do yeah. that. Mm -hmm. Um and then the other piece that I, I I think is relatively low hanging fruit is <clears throat> my husband has this expression which I love which is if there's a fault feature it. And I know, I, I think that there's this perception, well, we're this big academic institution and, you know, we don't kind of, we're not trained to do these things and we don't know where things are. But on the other hand, as an investor, I mean, we have to look at least 100 companies in order to find one investment. Mm -hmm. If somebody is a Mayo Clinic faculty that's been NIH funded, you've passed so many gates already for us to be interested in that company. Right. It's an automatic filter. And so really understanding the credentials that come with those ideas and then also providing, I forget if it was you, one of you said the proof of concept funding because it's a long path to an SBIR mm -hmm. and it's a long path to early stage venture capital financing. So having the, I, I know there are some internal sources of proof of concept funding, but really perhaps expanding those or you know, more broadly communicating because if, where there's funding, right, people want to go where there's funding but having funding for their ideas, and it can be multiple rounds of funding before you can ever even get to an SBIR or get to an early stage of, of financing. Putting those systems in place along with the, just the kind of the concierge services. There's the external part of it, and there's the internal part of it, right? The guide to here's how you do this. And I don't think those are hard things to create. I mean, 
that's a pretty straightforward. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the talented <coughs> services exist. They're just up the highway a few miles. And or if there's the enough country. Yeah. And, and getting them here, if there's work yeah, to be it, done, it, the work, you they'll know, find I their mean, way it's here. It's just like any other business analysis, yeah. right? I mean, a yeah. lawyer in Rochester costs a firm X. Yeah. Uh, is there enough activity to justify it? And yeah. I, could, I mean, the, the firms that I talk to in the cities, which is most of them, I mean, I think they want to be mm -hmm. here, and they are... You know, they're watching the numbers and activity closely like they're, you know, as soon as, you know, it's like leasing a building at 85%, right? right. You know, like they're, you know, they're waiting for right. that period, that, you know, tipping point so that they can start to, you know, I think be here full time. And, mm -hmm. you know, Twin Cities, I mean, there are a lot of people in the Twin Cities, I think, that would be interested in moving to Rochester. It is a... In many ways, a nicer place to live mm -hmm. than the Twin Cities. Well, our fund formation attorney for my companies in Seattle, you know, we've made three investments in companies where we actually never sat face to face with right. the company. I mean, this is just the way the world works now, yeah. you know. So I, I just, I don't see that. I mean, I, you want critical mass because you want to bring people to the table, and I think it's important to have physical presence at time. But I, the world's doing right. these things remotely now. And I assume most of the patent attorneys use Mayo. Minneapolis-based. Are they mostly Minneapolis But we have an internal cadre of yeah. patent attorneys, and okay. then we have external. And yeah. we use them both regularly. Absolutely. And then, you know, if you, so if you spin a company out of Mayo, you probably need to use a different patent attorney from the patent sure. attorney that Mayo uses. So, right. And they have the best patent <laughs> 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 You know, even just finding some of the former company, you know, I, I, I shopped around um, probably five or six different law firms mm -hmm. to do that. I eventually found somebody in Rochester who agreed to do an LLC for 5000 said he could do it for less than 5000 I mean, the range was up to 30000 And it's your own money you're putting in yes. at that stage. So it's a big deal. And you really want to kind of find that um, kind of best process. I did find that the lawyer that I engaged to do it, I mean, he was really good, really efficient. But then I started asking loads of questions. And he said, look, I quoted you five thousand dollars, but I didn't anticipate you would <laughs> sit me down. And I was like, <laughs> 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 Maybe underbid it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of it's that kind of thing. You know, that's that's where that if you can pull together mm -hmm. the, the the whole thing in science part. And wet lab space was horrible. I mean, you know, we, we had to build it ourselves. There wasn't any available wet lab space outside the Bayer Clinic, yeah. and so we built some in the biobusiness center. But we were, you know, whenever Mayo dismantled the lab to kind of rebuild it, we'd be out there looking in the dumpster, <laughs> <laughs> finding what we could use. And, yeah. You clean those before you actually yeah. spread the virus. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. We benefited greatly from that kind of turn. So, yeah. Well, I did did some little research and, and looking at clusters of innovation, which is what we've been talking about here, and, and I found a list of some of the qualities mm -hmm. of good clusters of innovation, and we've talked about a few of them already, um, one being synergy with education and research institutions. So I don't know if there's anything more to add on that, but obviously there's a lot of synergy here with education. I've been delighted to be watching the stairway yeah, right outside exactly. our <laughs> conference room and see all the young students walking yeah. into and out of Discovery Square, and that's really mm -hmm. something that's grown slowly but is really taking shape in Rochester. We're so delighted to have, and Chris can speak to this, students as a part of this building and a part of this campus. Yeah, imagine being a student in this building. We yeah. talked about that earlier. Right? Yeah, yeah. Having down in the coffee shop, 
Boston Scientific and Phillips and mm-hmm. Epic and Exact and Wuji and Mayo, all yeah. these organizations. Um, what a great place to, to be taking classes. We're also getting the attention of other universities, like Luther is a good example of that. They're about an hour and a half south of here, maybe an hour south of here, just across the border, and they're having more students spending more time here doing a semester abroad for a student from Luther is in Rochester. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they have <laughs> tw- 20 kids who are going to come up and do right. internships wow. in the yeah. spring and of the young 2020. young talent is really important. I think also um, our graduate school does a great job of recruiting top talent into the graduate school and how do we keep more of them here when they're done getting their PhD mm-hmm. as opposed to them leaving. So if they're already here, where can we find a place for them to land in companies like Viriat or Amanis or, or Sonics or Boston Scientific or wherever it might be? I think there's I think there's an opportunity there. As long as Mayo's doing a great job of importing that talent in and educating them, let's keep them here in Rochester. But DMC's been a critical part of that too, because even if you can guarantee jobs, you've still got a lot right. of young talent that wants right. access to, you know, another part of their lifestyle. And DMC's been critical to expand. Yeah, I think. Yeah, we daylight those opportunities, right? And by bringing those companies in, it creates those opportunities, and then we have a platform that we can use to daylight those opportunities and explore those ideas. And, and make those connections. That's but oftentimes I'm talking about the bars. Yes, I was going to say, right. It's also the community well, itself. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. No, but that's been an important, I mean, DMC's yeah. been critical yeah. to helping to attract entire right. yeah. ecosystem for life, you know, lifestyle. Yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly two right. blocks from here, there's two apartment complexes mm-hmm. going up, 300 right. units coming on the market yeah. as we speak. You know, mm-hmm. And Chase Point's not to be overlooked. I mean, <clears throat> the state of Minnesota mm-hmm. invested in this concept for the state of Minnesota because this drives economic activity and patient care as the the, healthiest state in the United States and an economic driver of our state is health care. The purposeful, proactive approach that our city has taken and that the DMC legislation has allowed us to do has been monumental. And it would have it would have happened in a really uncoordinated, slow, painful way, and now it's happening in a coordinated, thoughtful way, where the city planning elements are best in class, and the the lean buildings are best in class, and the economic engagement is really accelerated to a point where we couldn't have imagined this kind of thing happening in the time frame that it did. When you, when you were talking about cluster, you know, sort of the ingredients for a cluster, but. I also think if you're looking at growth from the perspective of you know the next generation of millennials and even you know getting to Z, and where are they going to be attracted to? These are generations one they want meaningful work, and so yep. Rochester checks checks the box in a way that almost no other place does. Mm-hmm. Um, they want gathering places um, where they can interact socially, and I think you know that is the bars, the restaurants, places like Discovery Square. Um, and they want, you know, great outdoors, great access to community. Um, and so, I, you know, I think all of the pieces that are going to be critical over the next 20 years, and more so than any other place, livable city. Um, you know, I, again, I think the build out of what is happening here and the meaningful work part is really critical. And I think that's one of the things that. Um, will continue to be a huge attraction point and over time will continue to be more and more um, sort of at the top list of people. And you look at companies that you know, people want to go work for, 
Uh, Mayo's at the top of that list. Companies like 3M that are really set up as private you know, research institutions and that they're doing things that people, you know, they like the values and the ethics. And, and I just think Rochester is uniquely positioned to attract that generation of talent. We're in conversations with Google. We have a strategic partnership with Google and we're going to have Google engineers situated in Rochester, Minnesota. And you think about a young person starting out their career in debt probably from sure. extensive education yeah. trying to start a life in San Francisco area versus what they can live like in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, we think that's a big value right. proposition and for the state of Google Minnesota. And, Mayo, yep. right? I mean, <coughs> and on top of that, I think also being able to impact the community. Things are happening here. You can you can start a got involved on Cardona in a coffee shop and cafe steam and it's like uh, you can do things that are outside of your core and actually really make an impact on a community when you're in a small a small thing. We have restaurants that are coming, we have all sorts of the, you know gyms and dog parks and just all sorts of things that are you can do and you can you can make an impact which you may not be able to do in other communities. Have you started into the dog park business as well, Tracy? I wanted, I wanted to enter the dog park, but, so I'm, uh, you know, <laughs> supporting those who are. First the dog, then the park. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. yeah. But we need an indoor one. Because oh, yeah. the rest of six yeah. months or five months out of the year, you need to have somewhere to go. Exactly. From a workforce perspective, I think it's also really good to be present to the fact that the average age of entrepreneurs is in the 40s. And yep. especially if we're right. talking pure tech play, then it skews younger. And you know, we find That's a lot on the coast. But we find most of the companies that we're looking at, especially if there is serious you know, sort of evidence-based technology, which is pretty much everything we're looking at, then the average age of those employees in that company and the founders are older. And so I think we should, I think there's probably a lot of people already here that fit that profile. Yeah, that sounds like a, that sounds like a Mayo clinician or investigator who has two or three or four hour ones under their belt, right? Mm -hmm. And I've always thought independently funded or NIH funded investigators are among the most entrepreneurial people I've ever met because it's publish, get the grant, or it doesn't work. It's soft money, and there's no—it's right. not like you ever get the traction where it, it's auto sustains. It, it's so, always but I think we need we need the experience as well. Yeah. So you know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of um, excitement about doing that entrepreneurial thing, but no clue how to actually right. do it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's where you know, if we can have the uh, the recycled entrepreneurs come right. in and kind of partner right. with these individuals, it's the perfect match. And we need Steve, that next big exit. Yeah. Steve is really a unique person because, and I, and I lead the technology development and commercialization function of Mayo Clinic with Jim Rogers, my partner. There aren't that many physician scientists who actually mm -hmm. can pull mm -hmm. off both aspects of mm -hmm. entrepreneurism, right. the science and the business. Right. Mm -hmm. Steve is exceptional. A lot of people, I say, do, do your science and then let the right. entrepreneurial business yeah. person take that idea and push it forward in partnership with you. So there's there's many different models. So and that, yeah, and, and I think, you know, I was exposed to a system when I was in Cambridge in the UK. So the Medical Research Council orchestrated startups in the UK. And so my technology in Cambridge was identified as worthy of a startup. And I was told by the Medical Research Council in London, you need to go out and have dinner with uh, a series of people who we sure. think could be the CEO for a company right. we'd like to 
form around your technology. Right. And there were a lot of dinners, and eventually I met a guy who, you know, we hit it off very well, and they said, right, okay, that's the team. <laughs> and then they brought all the investment groups to look at the company business plan. They, they laid out sufficient dollars for the CEO to write the business plan um, with um, MRC footing bill for that. But they really, they really nurtured the whole process from that level. And it was uh, it, it was important, and I learned a lot from that. That's so that enabled me right. to 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 be able to push things, um, you know, from the change, the rule change at Mayo Clinic. So were they essentially uh, importing the CEO talent to Cambridge from London to run your company in in a case? Yeah, from Mayo. People were going to the MRC and saying, "What have you got? Right. I want to form a company. I want to form my next company." Sure. And they would they would use those opportunities to partner with people. So they weren't necessarily in Cambridge. They no, came to no. right. And that's what we had to do in Iowa City as well because sure. there weren't. I mean, it's life sciences, no life science entrepreneurs, and um, you know we very similar bringing yeah. entrepreneurs and residents, working right. with the company, working with faculty to help them shape the idea, form the company, paying them to do some of that work, right. paying for proof of concept funding. Right. Um, you know, really helping them understand the process of spinning out the company. Right. Yeah, it's it's necessary because how else, right. you know, would, would, would that company form? And also another strategy, I don't know how much Mayo Clinic, um, or if Mayo Clinic does this, but creating um, graduate student fellows. Because a lot of times the faculty have great graduate students who actually want to become part of a startup and they're not necessarily CEO exactly. material, but in the early stages when it's very science oriented, right, yep. that person can sort of help form the company, lead the work, right. and then over time find the right the right business person to step in and run the company. Yeah. So you definitely need a runner. Mm -hmm. and, and somebody who's prepared to like yeah. sweep the floor, you know, talk oh, to yeah. lawyers, <laughs> um, you know, talk to investors, do the whole business plan, do the slide deck, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but, it, but it's every, every possible kind of level of engagement, yeah. So Shay, what does the bullpen look like? I mean, talk about that talent up yeah. in the Twin Cities, I mean, that's a, I mean, a huge ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, tomorrow, you know, we were going to do two days on here's what we've got that we think is valuable, but we, you know, we're not. Like we don't have a leadership team that we're looking at or whatever. Um, I mean, I could bring down tons of people who would want to sit through that. I mean, some of them are serial entrepreneurs looking for the next gig. I think um, you know, in this environment with of consolidation, I mean, there are a lot of people with a ton of experience running big divisions at companies, etc. Um, some, you know, an example. Don't print this in. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, the person who's done the meeting. So the button. <laughs> well, someone from our board, uh, you know, Stefan Hovart has ran global businesses for Coloplast. They just had a leadership change, and um, part of the leadership change was him leaving because in the last handful of years being here in Medical Alley, he's seen so much interesting stuff mm -hmm. that now he wants to get involved with it. Mm -hmm. And I could, you know, I could also easily identify a lot of people in that in that situation who are at larger companies who are interested in you know, moving out of them because you know, they're much more interested. So yeah, I mean, hey, 
here's all the stuff we've got. We've, you know, we've got 10 or 12 technologies that we think have something. Um, bring 25 people down here who would be interested in either helping to get them funded, taking over the businesses, or using their network of people who might not be here today right. that have that ability. Yeah, we could totally do that. We'll talk we offline, Jay. That. <laughs> That's exactly what we should yeah. That's awesome. Same with Sounds investors. And there's you know, a lot of investors in Minneapolis that would be happy to come down. I mean, people do a lot of ecosystem development already. Um, in Minneapolis, and so I think there would be interest in people coming down and helping as well to identify, you know, where are you in the stage of your development, who could help you, you know, what entrepreneurs are available to, you know, to join your company. So I think there's a lot, a lot of people that would want to help if it were organized in a way for them to plug in. Right. Fantastic. So in my reading, I saw that <coughs> HOK, I believe, was one of the architects, but they were also a uh, of one discovery here, but they also helped to build that 200-acre campus in St. Louis, the Cortex, Cortex. Innovation Community, mm -hmm. too, oh, yeah. um, to help them, you know, build businesses with Washington University right. and other local medical centers. So thinking of them, how does Rochester compare to them? What are they doing? Mm. How is Rochester different? We took a trip down to Cortex. There were a number of, quite a few of us that went down there a couple of years ago. Um, interesting, fascinating story down there that I think it started in 2002 or 2003. It was described to us as a real estate play. Warehouse space between WashU, Barnes Jewish Hospital, St. Louis University, um, and the Botanical Gardens. And it seemed like a great place for companies to reuse some old space because it was right in the middle of everything and the property owners they, as it was described to us they didn't have an exit plan for their property you can sell the buildings by the pound because it was an old warehouse district that wasn't being used remember that conversation and from 2002 to 2010 they proved that that was not going to work and in 2010 they shifted to a startup ecosystem and started growing companies and started changing policies and making resources available for companies to form and grow. And um, that was in 2018 that we're there. So from 2010 and 2018, they had literally hundreds of startups of all sizes in that Cortex Innovation Center space. And now companies like Microsoft are moving in, attracted by the technology and the talent that was, was there. That was a very informative, instructive visit for us. It was, and I think for me, there's two, two of, them of the differences I think that are the future for Rochester is that they were starting with five entities, and I, some of them are universities, mm -hmm. some of them are large corporations. Right. They all put a long-term commitment of capital right. into right. Cortex itself. Right. They said this is going to be a play that's going to take, take 10, 15 years, um, and we're going to sustain it through all of that. And I think that as DMC grows and as this whole Rochester area grows, we get some bigger, we get, Mayo is the big, is the big, the big force here. They can only support, they support a ton of things in the community, but we, as we get large other entities that are satellite um, companies, they all need to support a, a entity like Cortex to grow and to yeah. take and be long-term focused. Right. And then, um, the other takeaway was that I guess just the point that it was a long-term focus yeah. because it, it wasn't something that happened overnight. You have to take the long view, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay. So.
Yeah. Have you been there? Has anybody else been down there? Yeah. I've, I've spent quite some time <coughs> that yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, probably. Yeah, right around the twenty tenth time there. So you know, just making yeah. shift. Uh, it's it's, it's impressive. impressive, but it does. I mean, you know, underwriting activity yeah. for the long term is critical. And it's hard, I think, for entities where to to take and see that long term because you know you want quick play. You can see to move things faster. Another quality of a good cluster of innovation I, on my list here is uh, goes back to maybe what you were saying earlier, uh, Pamela, about the why of it all. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could talk more about that, but it's a shared values and alignment of interests. Can you describe that here? Obviously, we've talked about that a little bit already. But yeah, it was uh, interesting. I was just talking with a, a company this morning, and I, I said, <laughs> We're Mayo Clinic, and, and we actually treat our patients and our partners in the same way. We're honest, we're forthright, and we're looking for mutual benefit, and especially benefit for the human health, human health and the human condition. And so we, we practice our business like that with similar values. And people honestly see Mayo Clinic as a place that they can go and trust. The values is what is attracting a lot of the companies to us because they know they'll uh, they'll get the right answer from our scientists. We will not misrepresent. We will always be forthright with them, and uh, that's an incredibly important component of an ecosystem that we would be part of. And I think the basis of an ecosystem in Rochester. Mm -hmm. And being, I, I I just I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm I'm literally here because I love being here because of the culture. And because of, I mean, there's so many things in that, right? But it's this incredible visionary organization that is the best of the best in the world. And that's a huge part of what I value. But it's also um, a culture of very high integrity, very high authenticity, and a genuine, genuine desire to contribute. And um, I just think that a lot of people don't know <laughs> that that's what's here. Mm -hmm. That's what's here, that's, that's who Mayo Clinic is, that's who Rochester is, and the more people know that, people are going to be attracted to that. And I think those are articulated <coughs> values that make this ecosystem somewhat unique, but the why, and I think the attraction of companies that would come here or start here, is equally as powerful. And the why of this ecosystem is changing lives, it's saving lives. And not just here in Rochester, here in Minnesota. I mean, so you've got an ecosystem whose impact ultimately uh, it doesn't doesn't start with money; it starts with lives, and I, you know that's that's unique as well. Yeah, so for for me, it's it's quite simple. You may Clark has an eight hundred million dollar per year research engine, the whole purpose of which is to improve health. And it cannot do that without the commercial um, dimension that's being added at the moment. Yeah. Great. Um, but it's been a journey. Yes. Tonight we will um, celebrate the second Mayo Clinic Distinguished Inventor. Um, so we've only had one previous one, and that's an annual now award that really took a lot of time and effort to, to get through. and. Uh, shows the value that we place in the invention from the Mayo Clinic leadership perspective. Well, the fact that Mayo is doing that is, is 
fantastic because when you th say this is the second one, if you think of all the unrecognized inventors that have, you know, for the last 150 uh, years yeah. that have come out of Mayo, it's a statement that now it's being recognized. Yeah, we're just about, right? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. <laughs> so the first one was Kendall and Hedge. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I think if, um, uh, if people were to start to share this very simple vision of Mayo Clinic has this very unique opportunity to truly transform healthcare. I mean, everyone's talking about the transformation of healthcare. Everyone's talking about the consumerization of healthcare. Everyone's talking about the digitization of. And Mayo Clinic has this opportunity and to stand up and sort of raise your hand as a leader of doing that. It just, it seems that people would flock here mm -hmm. to be part of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so there's many ways to measure it, I suppose. The number of startups or patents or something like that, but maybe that's not a good measuring stick either. But what are your indicators? How are you going to know if you're doing a good job or you're on task or meeting your goals? What do you, what do you look at to say, hey, yeah, I think this is working? <laughs> we have a lot of yardsticks at Mayo Clinic, and, and first and foremost would be mm -hmm. staying true to our values. So we, we measure ourselves and hold us. Uh, accountable for that and we have a continuing association with the sisters uh, that, that hold us in that regard through our values council so that's number one are we doing the right thing uh, second you know how many lives are we impacting positively and what kind of ecosystem of um, clinical practice research edu and education and are we um, getting the proportions right and advancing science and then I do represent business development and ultimately in many ways previously the currency of uh, success was published papers and grants and there was there was accountability for productivity but it wasn't actually on patient impact and now we've actually modified the promotion criteria and um, included uh, patient impact with that uh, we also know that the inventions that are very successful and have impact will bring back revenue and we are a not-for-profit so any money that comes back from an invention gets reinvested into Mayo Clinic's clinical practice research and education mission so we call that the virtuous cycle of invention where it just goes back and fosters more invention you know I, I imagine everybody around this table would measure success differently um, some of us might be how many new companies have moved into Rochester because that's something that I'm evaluated for on my performance in, in growing our ecosystem or how many myriad Regeneron announcements do we have every year, right? Or how many exits or how many startups or how much investment capital comes into companies that are formed here or how many uh, how many people are moving to ride. There's a lot of different ways to measure it and the way Dr. Russell measures success for the things that he wants to do is going to be different than what Pam might measure, but I think in totality they're all going to add up. Mm -hmm. um, to ask the flip side then, too, I guess, I mean, even when these conditions naturally exist, there could be some factors that uh, you know, might block any spontaneous development. Are there things you watch out for as you're creating this uh, system at all that you think, oh, we, we need X in order for this to keep going, anything like that? Well, I think at least when one of the things we're focusing on is to how to make sure that when we are tapping um, and developing a lot of the 
the conception of what's happening in Rochester, that we are doing it in a very diverse and inclusive way, because um, I think the, the community is not is, is bigger is than just maybe what we've already been focusing, you know, just people coming out of Mayo and IP coming out of Mayo and how to take and make sure we're hitting a lot of other, you know, as many dem demographics as we can. And, Diversity, that's good. Yeah, I don't think you can overstate the importance of highly respected community leaders talking about this and reinforcing this work. It's it, it sounds so simple, but it so not having that is a pretty big hindrance. And as someone who's navigating this community over the last couple of years, it's like this big black box. You just you just it's hard to figure out who's doing what. And so having community leaders um, really talk about that is very important. And then also just culturally, I think a, a, a very big hindrance that most academic institutions encounter is is the cultural clash between research and business. And someone was saying to me the other day that, that this person's being asked to choose between startup and research. And so even if the leader of Mayo Clinic and the leaders of Rochester are standing for this, really having that understanding of what it's going to take to have that flow down to the institution and that requires a very thoughtful approach. So I'd say that I would say that's probably one of the biggest hindrances, but also something that's relatively you can define how to how to solve that problem. I think a threat is if we fail to fully engage the investment community. You know, because any company um, in in the healthcare space is going to spend a lot of money before it becomes mm -hmm. profitable, and so the appetite for capital increases um, throughout a, a period of several years in the evolution of the company, mm -hmm. and that access to capital becomes increasingly difficult. Um, particularly if you don't have those blue chip investment groups um, engaged. You know, if you're, if you're going to take a company public, to do an IPO, you really do need to have some very strong financial backers before you go into the IPO, because people won't trust the IPO if the company hasn't already been endorsed by a group that fully understands the biotech world and is recognized for understanding it and therefore gives the credibility. The alternative way around that is endorsement by large pharmaceutical companies because that I think at some level does trump the investment community. Um, it's one of the reasons we're so delighted at Viriat to have recently completed this deal with Regeneron. <coughs> and I don't think we would have been capable of completing a similar Series B investment agreement with um, a blue chip investment group. But you know, we may be now seen differently as we go forward. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. You've probably got some thoughts on that. Absolutely. And it's, it's a lot of people talk about the education and understanding of how to build companies in the early stage, but then there's the whole continuum. Mm -hmm. And almost, this is where I see a great opportunity in Rochester, if you really, were, if we were thoughtful about that life cycle of company development all the way through exit, you could really provide those kinds of, it's, it's a continuum of the resources and expertise that has to be brought to be successful. And again, it's not that hard to do, but just understanding that that's required. 
And the precursor to that, where I think Medical Alley plays a great role and can, can continue to play a role, is connecting startups to the strategics. Mm -hmm. Because we don't, it's very hard for us to invest in a company that doesn't have some track, you know, some traction. Um, it doesn't have to be revenue, but there has to be some something that that shows evidence for this company is going to succeed. And it's very hard for startups to make those connections mm -hmm. to those strategic players. So I think that's. I don't want to volunteer you, but you know, <laughs> but you're being volunteered. It is. Um, I mean, it is what we do. I think one of the things um, that we can do better, and actually where. I'm committing resources as we move into 2020 is to actually have leadership on staff uh, and resources committed to looking overall at the early stage ecosystem and a key component of that is great. We're looking at a company, let's get you early in front of um, strategics, payers, I mean let's try to accelerate um, you getting to market, let's shorten the distance between the small pivots that you're going to have to make to fit into, you know, a strategic strategy or, you know, get reimbursed. Um, and so, I, again, I, I think we as an organization um, continue to evolve and grow in the same way Rochester is, which is, um, you know, the, the steak and sizzle are there, um, but it is, you know, fully commercializing our capabilities as an organization to, you know, have dedicated resources and playing those roles and then helping to build out, you know, I mean, if we're looking at a science park, how do we help and advocate and make sure that gets funded, but how can we also help to bring talent to the table that can facilitate those conversations and run a research park, you know? bring people down to take a look at the technology. So, you know, it's one of those things, like, it's in our sweet spot, um, but making the investment to be able to regularly serve the community, um, you know, has been our, I'll say, lagger, and um, so, you know, we're looking to make some ground on that this year. Okay. Well, I do want to put one broad question to this group about innovation in general, um, and, and technology's connection to innovation. So. Reading Simon Sinek, if I'm pronouncing his, his latest book, The um, Infinite Game, recently, and he writes this, business today is subject to a dizzying rate of change. Um, the average lifestyle of a com or excuse me, lifespan of a company in the 50s was just over 60 years. Um, today it's less than 20. Um, according to a study by Credit Suisse, um, disruptive technology is the reason for that uh, decline in lifespan. However, though, um, disruptive technologies aren't new. In the 1950s, the credit card, the microwave oven, transistor radio, Velcro, um, bubble wrap, microchips, those were all invented in the 1950s. So if it's not technology that's starting innovation, if it's not clear, what is it, what is happening right now if it's not the technology that's uh, creating this dizzying rate of change? Um, just general thoughts about innovation. Go. I guess my view would be that, you know, years ago, just technology innovation was more the exception than the norm. And now we live in a, our culture now is continuous, it, it moved from continuous improvement to continuous innovation to continuous disruption. That's just the world that we live in. You know, whether it's your personal life or your professional life or your company, and so it's, it really calls upon organizations to really understand how do you train your employee workforce to do that. 
And I don't really think there are. This is why TechStars goes into you know United Healthcare and other places because there's organizations aren't they don't understand how do I retrain my workforce? How do I develop systems for that continuous innovation, continuous trans? I would say transformation because it's changing in such big ways. And so I think that's I'm not offering a solution, but I just think that's the challenge is training workforce for that reality of our paradigm. I think one of the things companies, <coughs> this would be true in any sector, but um, it's certainly true in healthcare. I mean, I think the compressing of companies, one, we're in a, an unparalleled age of knowledge. So you can start with mapping the human genome and, and the pace at which we're gaining knowledge that can have really big impacts on every individual is, we're, it's a unique period of time. As a result, we're collecting more and more information about, uh, again, the human body, but consumer behavior. So there's more data than we've ever had before. And then I would say the technology infrastructure is more capable of you know, storing, analyzing. So while we've had technology advancements, being able to utilize that around the data sets and knowledge that exists. I mean, I, I think you're, we're seeing a point in time, and as you know, further development in AI happens. It's sort of the, the perfect storm and probably in a positive way where companies today, I mean, the game can just almost literally change overnight. And that cycle of pivots, um, and again, that's why I mean, we make the comment about pivots, you know, for, for disruptive companies that are trying to get into healthcare uh, that haven't been there, they gotta kind of figure it out. So we see companies, early stage companies, we're going here, whoops, you know, mm -hmm. and, and being able to almost entirely shift a business model. And so the, the quicker we can bring those realizations to help them, but I think that runs parallel to how quickly things change. Um, and I think that's, there's risk uh, and challenge there for established companies. Um, there's opportunity for earlier stage companies. But then I think the connectivity and partnerships critical because larger companies have some of that infrastructure to deal with those changes and still live through them. Uh, if they can bring some of the ideas and solutions from small companies, so I, I just think it's a it's a unique time, truly unique. Never in human history has there been the alignment of being able to actually utilize tons of data and knowledge uh, with technology. Mm -hmm. Maybe tangential to your question, but trainees in my lab often worry that they're never going to make it in science because they're not innovative. And they can't come up with great ideas about the next thing to do like they perceive me to be able to do. And, and I always say to them, it's, it's not really anything special. It, it's just your knowledge has to first get to the point where you're at the cutting edge. And as soon as you're there, it's obvious what the next step is. It's not really some dramatic, innovative thing. It seems like you pulled a rabbit out of the hat for somebody <laughs> who didn't know where the field was. But then you look around, and you know, oncolytic viruses, viruses of cancer therapy, there are 40 companies out there developing this. You know, and it's all it, because the idea has the time has come, you know, and everybody's really pushing it hard and fast, and it's a race. So, I think, you know, at some level, with the development of new approaches to, um, to attacking disease in the, in the medical profession, it really is just, you know, where's the knowledge got to, and what's the logical next step? 
and uh, and it seemed like innovation, but you know, it's <laughs> it's just <laughs> plodding <laughs> progress <laughs> at the cutting edge. <laughs> anyway. Sure. Like, so from from the outside in, that looks like disruptive, cutting edge using viruses to treat cancer, yeah. but from the inside out, it was like, well, that was a logical next step in many, many years of the, the yeah. work and thinking, and so of course we would do that, um, but people don't see that happening. Yeah. You okay. saw it happening because you lived it, but for the rest of the world, they didn't see it coming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. At a recent event, I heard Ecolab's president say, um, Innovation also requires implementation and scale to bring these new ideas to reality, and that's kind of what you were saying too. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, innovation without the ability to actually implement the solution is a really great idea. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. That, and on top of implementation, I think it's persistence. That even even though things are moving super fast, it's like it's like you're saying, how many how many VCs did you go talk to? How many you know? It's like all things. It's it all looks easy once you're once you're there, but the amount of work and effort and mm -hmm. history and all that you have to keep at to, to make things to make things click and to do the Slowly all of a sudden. Slowly all of a sudden, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well on that note, I'm gonna say thank you to everyone for joining me for this wonderful conversation. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good conversation. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce, or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.